Though much is taken, much abides. Though we are not that strength which in old days moved heaven and earth, that which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will, to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. These are the words of English poet Alfred Lord Tennyson. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. There has been a long hiatus in this program because I've been working on a book about the history of space exploration. And while this book is not yet finished, I want all of our listeners and Patreon supporters to know that we are still committed to bringing them excellent content on this podcast. And with that, we begin today's episode. Perhaps Alfred Lord Tennyson's aforementioned words are entirely appropriate for NASA's human spaceflight program in the 21st century. While robotic explorers have visited many worlds in the solar system, NASA's human spaceflight program has been stagnant in recent decades. In August of 2022, after over a decade of development at enormous financial costs, NASA planned an uncrewed launch of the SLS, or Space Launch System, in Florida, four years behind schedule. But a strange temperature reading in August canceled the launch, and it was then rescheduled for September 3rd. But on that date, there was another problem. A leak of liquid hydrogen in the rocket's fuel tank caused that launch to be scrubbed as well. Finally, in the early morning hours of November 16th, 2022, the massive rocket rose triumphantly off the launch pad. 15% more thrust than the Saturn V, it was the most powerful rocket ever launched. It carried the uncrewed Orion capsule on a mission around the Earth's moon, traveling further from Earth than any human-rated capsule in history. Such a captivating voyage is one that human beings have seen before, and while the launch of the SLS may mark the beginning of a new, great era in American spaceflight, it is entirely possible that an even more pivotal and paradigm-shifting moment in spaceflight happened half a century ago this month, when the first and so far only scientist in human history set foot on the surface of an alien world. By the winter of 1972, the captivating drama of the space race was old news. And with ten astronauts having walked on the surface of the moon, the entire exercise seemed like a rerun of a television show already in syndication. President Richard Nixon, who never had much interest in space exploration to begin with, canceled three Apollo moon missions, Apollo 18, 19, and 20. Even as the final Apollo mission, Apollo 17, was planned, many at NASA were already looking towards the future space shuttle program. The last mission to the moon would be commanded by Eugene Cernan, a seasoned astronaut who had walked in space during the Gemini program and orbited the moon on Apollo 10, though he had yet to ever walk on its surface. Cernan was a truly great astronaut, with an even greater ego. Even as Apollo missions were being canceled due to budget cuts, Cernan had been offered the chance to walk on the moon in the Apollo 16 mission, a coveted dream for any astronaut. But Cernan turned down the job. He told the head of the astronaut office, Deke Slayton, that he wanted to command a mission of his own. His boss was speechless. Cernan risked his entire career in a huge gamble. And the gamble paid off. While Cernan walked on the moon, 
his command module pilot, Ronald Evans, would orbit the moon. Both men had had successful careers as Navy aviators before they became astronauts. While many astronauts' wives found the demanding schedule to be especially stressful on family life, his wife, Jan Evans, was delighted when her husband became an astronaut. She believed that a journey to the moon, as dangerous as it was, would not be as dangerous as the prospect of flying combat missions over North Vietnam. The third member of the crew was geologist Harrison Jack Schmidt. He would land on the moon alongside Cernan. In the 1960s, the brilliant geologist Gene Shoemaker lobbied hard for NASA to accept scientists into the astronaut corps, but even when his efforts proved successful, very few scientists applied. Perhaps many American scientists knew full well that their chances of actually flying in space were quite slim. All astronauts at that point were military test pilots. But Shoemaker's young protege, Jack Schmidt, volunteered and attended a year of pilot training at an Air Force base in Arizona. When NASA accepted him in 1965, the young, brown-eyed geologist was just 29 years old. The December evening of Apollo 17's launch would prove to be the only night launch of the mighty Saturn V rocket. But even though many such rockets had been launched before, there was tension in the air at NASA. Security on the property was increased, amid fears that the terrorist organization Black September might attempt an attack on American soil. There were even fears that the organization might attempt to kidnap the children of the Apollo 17 astronauts. Law enforcement had been keeping watch over the astronauts' homes at all times in recent weeks. After a delay of nearly three hours due to a fuel tank that failed to pressurize, the rocket finally launched. Ten, nine, eight, seven, ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition. Two, one, zero. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center as the Saturn V is moving off the pad. It is now cleared the tower. blinding torch of flames erupted out of the bottom of the rocket, sending the Saturn V, taller than the Statue of Liberty, rising into the night sky. The staccato fury of the thunderous rocket rattled and shook NASA's massive vehicle assembly building, miles away. It was like a massive flaming meteor, but instead of falling to Earth, it was rising into the night sky, eventually fading until it merely looked like a dim star. Each Apollo crew spent only a fleeting period of time in low Earth orbit before the third and final stage of their rocket ignited, allowing them to break free of the Earth's gravity and push on to the moon. As the cloudy blue sphere of the planet Earth grew smaller and smaller, Jack Schmidt talked nearly nonstop to Mission Control about the weather patterns he observed. Gene Cernan said it was like a never-ending weather report for days on end. But when they entered orbit around the moon, Schmidt was speechless. Their landing site would be a valley deeper than Earth's Grand Canyon, called Taurus Littrow. The Taurus Mountains of the moon are named after the Taurus Mountains in Turkey, and Littrow Crater is named after Bohemian astronomer Joseph Johann Littrow. The Apollo 17 lunar module was named Challenger, for the immense challenge of the United States sending men to the moon. Cernan, an exceptional pilot 
executed a near-perfect landing. Forty-five years after Apollo 17, Jack Schmidt examined mission transcripts, craft an eloquent diary, a scientist's rigorous account of exploring an alien world. It is called The Diary of the Twelfth Man, and some of the words in that account will be used in our podcast today. Schmidt described the landing site in the following words. A dark gray cratered valley floor emerges in the near distance with the much lighter gray, steep and brilliantly illuminated slopes of the valley walls. The undulating tops of massifs five to seven thousand feet above us lie starkly against the blacker than black sky in inverse silhouette. The rays of the low sun in the east illuminate the sunward slopes of all valley features, even dark shadows behind rocks and greater walls in their path. Around the shadow of one's own helmet, there exists a halo of bright reflection emanating from the fairy castle texture of the surface and from billions of sparkling glass particles. And then your eyes reach upward to the blue and white earth hanging with no relative motion over the southwestern massive wall of the valley. Stepping onto the dusty surface of the moon, the two men erected an American flag that had been hanging at Mission Control in Houston all throughout the Apollo missions, a tribute to the hundreds of thousands of people who worked behind the scenes of the American space program. Then, they unfolded and activated a battery-powered lunar roving vehicle that would ferry them to multiple geological sites on the moon. On Earth, wind and water erosion constantly reshape our landscape. On the moon, where there is no atmosphere and no weather, the pristine landscape has remained unchanged for millions of years, disturbed only by occasional micrometeorite impacts. It is rare to find any rock on Earth that is billions of years old, but on the moon, they are everywhere. It is a geologist's paradise. Cernan and Schmidt drove their rover to Shorty Crater. While it was likely to be an impact crater, there were some lunar geologists who believed it could be a volcanic vent, even though there was little evidence that the moon was volcanically active. As Schmidt bounded across the dusty surface in one-fifth of the Earth's gravity, he caught sight of something striking in the landscape. In a landscape filled with gray and white, he saw the color orange, a clear sign of volcanism. He collected a sample of what was later found to be tiny beads of volcanic glass. It fascinated lunar geologists back on Earth, but it was later found that the volcanic glass was not from Shorty Crater. The feature was indeed an impact crater, just as geologists had suspected, but the glass was much older, billions of years old. It had sprayed onto the surface of the moon in an eruption, which geologists call a fire fountain. Another intriguing find by Schmidt was a piece of unshocked lunar rock, which NASA would later call the most interesting sample ever returned from the moon. It was dated at 4.2 billion years old. And it offered evidence that the moon once had a powerful, invisible magnetic field, just like the Earth does, which is peculiar considering that the moon is a celestial body much smaller than the Earth. 
Standing on the moon was an almost spiritual experience for Commander Gene Cernan. He said it was like standing on God's front porch. At one point, Cernan suggested that his fellow astronaut should stop his work for a moment and take a look at the beautiful blue sphere of the Earth in the jet black sky. But the geologist simply said, quote, Ah, you've seen one Earth, you've seen them all. On the astronaut's last extravehicular activity, or EVA, with Schmidt safely inside the lunar module Challenger, Commander Gene Cernan stood in the sun-washed Gray Valley and made a brief speech to mark the occasion. During the speech, it was obvious that Cernan was exhausted. After three days of grueling physical activity on the moon, collecting rocks, and conducting scientific experiments, he was ready to go home. America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow, inspiring and patriotic words from the last man on the moon. The three astronauts who flew a nearly flawless mission on Apollo 17 would all return home safely, splashing down in the Pacific Ocean a few days later. They would bring back more moon rocks than any previous mission. With the Artemis era upon us, there is a new opportunity to unlock the scientific mysteries of the moon. In a previous podcast, I spoke with author Andrew Chaikin, a man who has interviewed every astronaut that has walked on the surface of the moon. Chaikin said the following about lunar exploration. I really feel the moon is the Rosetta Stone of the solar system because it is the best place in the solar system to decipher the earliest chapters of solar system history through the record of cosmic impacts that's preserved on the moon's surface and the record of solar output that's preserved in the lunar soil and things like that, but particularly the impact record, which goes back much farther. And from that, you can begin to decode everything else that happened. And, you know, the moon is um, the way in which we came to understand so much about the origin and evolution of the solar system. And it's a spectacular place from everything the astronauts say. It is a spectacularly beautiful place. It's the only place in the solar system where you can stand on the surface of another world and see the Earth as a planet rather than as a bright star-like point of light, which is what it's going to be when you go to Mars. You know, Mars is so far away that the earth is like a bright star in the in the in the evening or the morning sky 
and it's so far away that you can't have real-time conversations with anybody uh, except the people who are on Mars with you. And all of these things make the moon pretty special. And it's also the outward bound school as, uh, as uh, Richard and Wendy Peeney, the science fiction writers, uh, said to me once, it's like the outward bound school uh, for us because we, we're only three days away from home and we can learn how to live off world. Um, so, you know, I, I've never agreed with that mindset that the moon has been there, done that. And I'm really glad we're planning to go back. Looking back on the last crewed mission to the moon, geologist Jack Schmidt would later write the following words. Carried forward in many ways, this adventurous character of humans, particularly Americans, uniquely identifies us among the known species of nature. We have the audacity to try to understand our place in the universe and its future. We have the further audacity to try to understand, preserve, and benefit from the Earth, now with the corrected vision from space. Ultimately, we expect, as a species, to use this understanding to alter the universe and to better our lives within it. 